welcome to the Sunday night service at Bible Fellowship Church. We're doing it at a distance, again, as a podcast, but we're glad you've joined us. And uh, I would invite you to open your Bible, please, to Malachi chapter 2, verse 17. We're going to look at uh, 2.17 all the way down to 3.6 tonight. So if you have your Bible with you, uh, turn there. Uh, If not, just listen along as I read it to you. Uh, The word of the Lord says this, You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, How have we wearied him? By saying, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, Where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire, like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. And then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former days. And then I will draw near to you for judgment. And I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask his blessing as we look at it together. Lord, we are conscious of our need. We're conscious of our need to hear from you. We're conscious of our need to have the help of the Spirit to understand the riches of your word. So be with us tonight. We need you. Hear our prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen. You know, it's a common accusation among outsiders that God is unjust. They say things like this. They say, well, if he's there, why does he tolerate injustice? Why does he permit disease? Why doesn't he cure cancer? If he really loves us, why does he send people to hell? If he really cares for me, why doesn't he accept my lifestyle? You say that he's a God of justice, but I say that he's not just at all, if this is the kind of God he is. That we hear these things from the lips of those who don't know God isn't too surprising. But what happens when God's people begin to think these same thoughts? It's not too uncommon for some who claim to be insiders to hear those kind of accusations whispered or sometimes even openly discussed among more progressive, as it's called, people who call themselves Christians. The accusation that God is unjust isn't a new one, and we see this in these verses from Malachi. The people of Malachi's generation were making that same accusation. God delights in those who do evil, they said. Whatever happened to the God we were told about who always did what was right? We don't seem to see him anywhere. How did God answer these insulting accusations? Well, his answer is surprising, and that forms tonight's lesson. The big idea we have before us tonight is that God doesn't change, and that he's coming to purify his people. 
Are you ready? Now, tonight's lesson is in three different movements. Uh, First of all, in verse 17, we're going to find God's people accusing him of injustice. Then in verses 1 through 5, we're going to be surprised by God's gracious answer in response to their accusations. Then finally, in verse 6, we're going to find that God's character guarantees his justice and his mercy. So let's begin by looking, first of all, at verse 17. Verse 17, God's people accuse him of injustice. Through his prophet Malachi, remember Malachi means my messenger, through his prophet, God had again spoken to his people, dealing with their declining spiritual condition. The people were losing their love for God, and their worship at the temple was simply becoming a bore to them. They, they couldn't tolerate it. They're just going through the motions. And as we've seen previously in previous message, God, messages, God has spoken to them about this. In this verse, God confronts their condition once again by pointing out their deeply offensive accusation against him through their words. Listen to Malachi 2.17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? You see, the people were sitting in judgment on God and accusing him of injustice. They were saying, you know, we go to the temple as we should, and we bring you our sacrifices just like we're supposed to, but you're not taking any notice of us. You refuse to bless us. But we've noticed something else about you. You seem to be letting people who are evil get away with murder. We're looking at the people around us, and you don't seem to be checking them or doing anything against their evil at all. Now, setting aside the fact that their worship was spiritless and that their sacrifices were defiled, as the previous passages in Malachi have shown us, the fact that God wasn't blessing them led them to conclude that God simply didn't care about justice. Now, how did they arrive at this conclusion? Well, the text doesn't specifically tell us what they were thinking, but we can make a good guess. You know, even in their sorry spiritual condition, These people knew that one day Messiah would come to restore all things. And to them, that meant the overthrow of the worldly powers, such as the Persian Empire. They were captives of the Persian Empire. They were under Persian domination. When Messiah came, it would mean that all the unrighteous people would be brought to heel under his righteous reign. When Messiah came, it would mean that it would mean that Israel would be restored to its proper place of dominance in the world community, and that the Jewish people would also experience a time of unparalleled prosperity. But when they looked around them, far from these things being echoed in their present situation, they found that hostile communities surrounding their nation seemed to be being blessed by God, and they seemed to be being left behind. The Samaritans to the north of them were a particularly galling example, and the Ammonites, the Horonites, and the Arabs that surrounded them were a continual threat to their safety. Even those practicing open sin among them seemed to be more blessed than they were. And when they surveyed all of this, 
their spirits turned bitter, and they began a bitter accusation against God. They said to him, You're unjust. We're your righteous people, but you delight in the wicked instead of us. Where's the God of justice our forefathers told us about? He seems to have left the building. We don't see him anywhere in sight. Now, God was rightly offended by this for two reasons. First of all, to accuse God of injustice is horribly arrogant. To do this is to imply that you're more righteous than God is and that you're able to sit in judgment on the one who's been infinitely patient with your sorry, sinful soul. Secondly, to accuse God of injustice is to join with the people of this world who make that same charge against God with distressing frequency. The stock and trade of every atheist, skeptic, and agnostic is to accuse God of injustice. If God is just, they say, why does he permit war? Why does he let good people suffer with cancer? Why doesn't he cure poverty? Why are there millions living in ignorance and squalor around the world? A just God wouldn't allow these injustices. So obviously, your God doesn't care about justice. Now, why do the unrighteous people of this world delight in making these accusations? Well, they do that because in our sinful fallen condition, we always seek to shift blame for our own sinfulness onto somebody else's shoulders. Have you noticed it? Go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve in the Garden. Eden, Eve said, the snake it. Adam said, well, the woman made me do it. And even worse, Adam implied that God made him do it when he said, oh, it was the woman you gave me that made me do it. What a horrible thing when God's own people join with the rebels of this world to accuse God of injustice. Listen to what Jim Boyce said about these kind of accusations. Boyce tells us, every attempt to excuse ourselves is in the final analysis an attempt to blame God. It is saying, as Martin Luther in his lectures on Genesis accused Adam of saying, Thou, Lord, hast sinned. You see, the people of Malachi's day were not being blessed by God, but it wasn't because God was unjust. That accusation was merely an attempt to shift the blame for their sins onto the shoulders of God. And that's what we always do, isn't it? We never want to take responsibility for our own sins. We want to blame someone else. And when you think about it, every time we do that, we're actually accusing God of being unjust because he permits these things. The doctrinal point in this first verse is simply this, that when man sits in judgment on God, the whole world is turned on its head. You know, blame shifting has risen to the level of a high art form in our day. Seems as if no one's ever responsible for their own sins. The, the student says, well, you know, Mom, I didn't fail that math class because I wouldn't do the homework. I failed because the teacher doesn't know how to teach. Or someone else might say, I didn't lose that promotion because I'm so frequently absent from work. I lost it because the boss plays favorites. Or maybe somebody else says, it wasn't my fault my marriage fell apart. 
You wouldn't believe what I had to put up with living with that woman. Everyone seems to have become a master escape artist these days. How sad when God's people join in this movement. Whenever we give in to the temptation to shift the blame for our failures onto the shoulders of someone else, we're actually accusing God of being at fault. And when we do that same thing that the people of Malachi's day did, when we get in on this, we're saying with all of Adam's fallen race, it's your fault, God, thou, Lord, hast sinned. What about you? Have you learned the precious lesson of being honest with yourself and with God about your sins, or are you sitting in judgment on God by shifting the blame for your sins onto somebody else's shoulders? If you find that a convicting question, let me follow it up with another one. What has God ever done to you to deserve to be treated that way? Every time we give in to this common temptation to shift blame for our sins away from us, and on to someone else, or on to something else, anything other than ourselves, we're insulting the one who's loved us. Now, what reaction can we expect from doing this? Well, read on, because God's reaction to this accusation, I find very surprising. When we look at verses 1 through 5, we find that God gives a gracious answer to his people's accusations. Warren Wiersbe has noted that people who argue with God rarely receive blessings from God, and I think most of us would tend to agree with that statement by Wiersbe. How surprising is it then when we look at these verses and we find that God graciously gave an answer to his people? They demanded justice of him in verse 17. They said, if you were just, you'd give us justice. Well, they demanded justice of him, But in these verses, he promises to come to them personally to supply them not with the justice they demanded, but with mercy they didn't deserve. Listen to God's promise to them in verse 1 of Malachi 3. He said, Behold, I send my messenger, and he'll prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of his covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, what is he saying? He's saying, my messenger will come. And we know from our New Testaments that what he's here talking about is John the Baptist. Matthew 11.10 tells us this, quotes this very, these very verses as support for John the Baptist's ministry. And then he goes on and says, and then I myself am going to come to my temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight is coming too. Now, obviously, the one he's referring to here is none other than the Messiah. And we know his name is Jesus. These people knew Messiah was coming. The people were waiting for Messiah to come. So God had told, tells them here, he's coming just as I promised. Now that's a wonderful promise. But when you think about it, how is that an answer to their accusation of injustice by God? They said to God, you're unjust. And he answered by saying, I'm coming just as I promised. See, the answer doesn't seem to follow. It's like saying, your ice isn't cold enough. Now listen to Warren Wiersbe's commentary on verses 1 through 5 of chapter 3. Wiersbe says, how do these five verses answer the question, where is God's justice for his people? 
they answer it in just this way. When Jesus Christ came and died on the cross, he completely satisfied the justice of God. He paid the penalty for the sins of the world and vindicated the holiness of God. See, they were asking for justice, and God said, I will come, and I will do justice. I'm going to do justice for all of your sins in my perfect son, Jesus. And in just this way, I'm going to give you mercy at Christ's expense. What a gracious answer. Christ's work on Calvary answered the question that we find in the next verse, in verse 2. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? The answer to that question is simply this. Who can endure the day of his coming? Well, it's only those who have received the purifying work of Jesus, God's Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Not only was God's answer surprisingly gracious, the work of the Messiah would be surprisingly gracious as well. Instead of overthrowing the Persians and pouring out the wrath of God on sinners, his work at his first coming would be to purify his people and to restore proper worship through his sacrifice on Calvary. They were told this in Malachi 3, verses 2 through 4. These verses tell us, But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and fuller's soap. He'll sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he'll purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they'll bring forth offerings in righteousness to the Lord. And then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. You see, what he's saying is simply this. When Messiah came, he would surprise the nation of Israel. Far from pouring out his wrath on God's enemies, he spent his whole mission on taking away the sins of his people. Perhaps most surprising is the promise that we find in Malachi 3, verse 5. That verse says, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I'll be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. As we carefully think about the sins that he's promised to deal with in this verse, we notice that these are the very sins that the people of Malachi's day were engaging in. If you take time to read the parallel accounts in Nehemiah and Ezra, books dealing with this same generation, you'll find that these were the sins of Malachi's audience. We might expect to read in this verse that God was coming to pour out his wrath on such sinners, but I want you to notice carefully the wording of the verse. He does not say, I will bring judgment. Rather, he said, I'll be a swift witness against these sins. See, his coming would testify to his justice. He would testify to the fact that God takes sin seriously. This is shown in the suffering of Jesus on the cross for our sins. But his coming would also be a witness to the mercy of God toward sinful people. For though we don't deserve it at all, we've been pardoned for Jesus' sake. Again, the idea here is one of purification, as one of setting things right among his people. He would come to them 
and he would purify them. When a silversmith refines silver, he heats it in a pot that turns the silver into a liquid. When the silver is melted, impurities called dross rise to the top. The smith scrapes the surface of the liquid to remove the dross repeatedly until he can see his face in the mirror like of the purified silver. Now in just that way, through the sacrifice of Jesus, God has purified his people. And that process isn't done yet, loved ones. Even today, the Spirit of God is at work sanctifying the lives of the people of God. And he's not going to stop until he can see his image perfectly reflected in our faces. Are you surprised by God's gracious answer to the people of Malachi's day? They accused God of injustice, and his answer was, I'm coming to heal injustice at my own expense. In mercy I have loved you, and now I'm going to make you pure through the coming of my Son. How patient is the Lord our God with our fallen, stinking selves. I wonder if we realize the real purpose for God's creating of the world. Perhaps we think that his only concern was to punish sinners and to crush evil under his feet. He will do those things, make no mistake about that. But that wasn't his purpose. His purpose is to purify a people for his namesake, a people who've been made pure that will glorify him and enjoy him forever. And dear one, if you have put your faith in him, you're part of that people. Not because you receive justice, but because he gave you his mercy. Now, why does he do that? Well, the answer is in verse 6. In verse 6, we find that God's character guarantees his justice and his mercy. Verse 6 tells us this, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Now here's an old and precious truth about our God. He's the unchanging God. His character is fixed and doesn't vary from generation to generation. Malachi, you know, wasn't the only Old Testament prophet to speak about this. Listen to Jeremiah's testimony to this same truth in Lamentation 3, 19 through 24. Jeremiah, after the crushing of his people by the Babylonian Empire, says, Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Now, here is our hope in every generation. It is God's character, and God's character is unchanging. What he has promised to do in love, he's certainly going to bring to pass. God doesn't change, and that's our hope through all of our times of trouble. You know, I know almost nothing about boats. One of the most terrifying memories for me was made last year when Gwen and I were with our family in Lake Lure, North Carolina. 
we spent a really pleasant afternoon on the lake with our family using a rented pontoon boat. It was great. We cruised the lake, we saw the sights, and at a certain point we dropped the anchor so that our grandkids could go swimming. Only the anchor was an automatic sort of affair and it, it wouldn't work. We couldn't get it to drop. That was no problem, however. My son, much superior in experience in these things, served as our captain, so he would let the boat drift and then periodically he'd steer it back into position. He was our anchor, since the boat's anchor was useless. Well, the whole thing was so pleasant that Gwen and I took courage and rented a canoe for the following afternoon. Terrifying. Tiny boat. No anchor. No captain to steady the boat. Big waves from bigger boats going way too fast, way too close to our little canoe. I didn't enjoy it a whole lot, and I was really happy when we finally got back to shore. Now, what would have made it a better experience? Well, a bigger boat, an experienced captain, and an anchor that would hold. Yeah, I'm wondering, when the storms of life rock your little boat, is your hope anchored in the unchanging character of God? Has Jesus become your Noah's Ark? Is he your captain courageous? Is he the anchor that keeps you steady while the storm is raging? Why in the world would we ever want to pretend that we are smarter or stronger or even more just than the never-changing God? We need a better anchor than we can provide for ourselves. Is the unchanging God your anchor? Who can endure the day of his coming, asked Malachi. Well, the answer is only those who receive his justice and mercy in Jesus, of course. Only those who lean into his unchanging character. In chapter 1, we read God's statement to his people through Malachi, I have loved you, says the Lord. And you know what? That hasn't changed. God loved Malachi's people, and God loves Jesus' people, and God loves you. Why don't we lean into the unchanging God, loved one? Lean in. Lord, we thank you for your amazing love, that you love us so much that even when we insult you and treat you with contempt, you present to us your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And you won't stop loving us and you won't stop cleaning us up. You won't stop until we reflect your image. And we are so grateful. We are so grateful to be in the hands of a good and loving God. Help our hearts to overflow with this truth as we think about it in the days to come. We need your encouragement during this time of social distancing and being alone, so many in their homes. We need you. We need you. Be with us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you for being with us tonight. We'll look forward to seeing you again next time. In the meantime, 
Stay safe.